added time is supported by Fitbit. Get real-time insights on you and your world with the Fitbit Versa 2, the all-new premium smartwatch with Amazon Alexa built in, your personalised sleep score and a 5-plus day battery life. We will start this morning's Added Time podcast with, of course, a haiku. Obviously. Obviously. Where, where else do we start? A haiku coming from? Uh, this was written by my wife yes. on Saturday morning. Big, big rugby fan. Big rugby fan. Mm. You ready? Born ready. Strong and fast they run. Mm. A tier two team in blossom. Yeah. They deserved to win. I mean, thanks very much, everybody. We will see you on Thursday. That's the end of the podcast. I don't see why we'd need to talk to Jerry Thornley and Gavin Kominsky in Japan after that. <laughs> I really don't. It's everything summed up. I rarely see why we have to talk to them anyway. Um, what we are going to do as we take all that in, mm-hmm. take in that haiku, we're going to work through the rest of the podcast and we'll think about it after. Uh, we have an awful lot on today. Yes. We're going to get on to, in a bit... Uh, we're going to talk to Jerry and Gav. Uh, after that, we have Emmett Malone coming in to talk about John Delaney leaving. Leaving the FAI, yeah. In the dead of night on Saturday night. And later than that, even, we have Ian O'Reardon in to talk about the World Athletics Championship fiasco over in Doha. And it is a fiasco. So it's a happy, cheery at a time yeah. podcast this morning, uh, with which we will begin. By talking to our men in Japan, uh, Gavin Kominsky and Jerry Thornley are in Kobe. How are you, lads? Very well, well thank you. Uh, Jerry, um, we'll start with you. Uh, tell us what happened. The, the, the pall over the country needs lifting. What happened? How long have we got? Um, well, they uh, started quite well. They were in control for about 25, 30 minutes. They were 12, 3 up. They'd uh, employed pretty good strategy. They'd won about six or seven lineouts inside the Japanese half. They were well in control of the game, it seemed, although there'd been a few scary moments and some warning signs that uh, the line speed that they'd employed so effectively in the two Welsh games and against Scotland wasn't quite there, such as the speed of the ball coming from the Japanese recycling. And there had been a few near misses. And then um, their execution began to let them down. The set piece, which had been flawless in the first game against Scotland and for the first 30 minutes, there was a key line-out just inside halfway, a five-man line-out. It wasn't even contested, and uh, Ian Henderson extending himself fully, even with one hand, couldn't get near the ball, which was Rory Best overthrow. Um, Shihoda, the Japanese hooker, brilliant player, latched onto it, and that led to three points, like a 6-12. Then they had a scrum where they stayed down, trying to restore their two-score lead, I'm guessing. Um, ball CJ Sanders beat, and the Japanese just stayed low in scrummaging and powered through. And got a relieving penalty. Gavel confirmed this. The roar which greeted that was only surpassed by the roar which greeted uh, Kenki Fukuoka's try in the second mm. half and the full-time whistle. It was quite staggering how much energy they derived from it. Um, from an Irish perspective thereafter, I actually looking back at the game again a second time, they actually, uh, they actually did quite well to gain a territorial foothold about five or six times in the second half. But again, their execution kept letting them down. Uh, Jack Cardi had a really good first 39 minutes, kicked the restart dead, which didn't lead to any tangible difference on the scoreboard, but it put the team through an extra 14-phase, three-minute defensive set, which is the last thing they needed in that humidity after 40 minutes. Second half, um, he put through a couple of good kicks, and they 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 yielded a dividend, but uh, he got run over a couple of times, so it was cue for Joey Carberry. Joey's only played 15 minutes of rugby since May, and it showed he was taking the ball quite deep at the start. Um, he called for one out the back when it was a three-on-three after they pounded through for about 14 phases. He got cut off at the pass by Lenecki when they went to recycle it. They just didn't resource the rock. And the breakdown was the key problem area, really, along with the second line-out, which was a side underthrow to Ryan in the middle of the line-out. was yeah. picked off uh, by James Moore, I think. And they just their execution kept letting them down. They defended as heroically as they could, but uh, the Japanese try was, to be honest, it was coming. It's never, I've rarely been in the stadium which felt like there was such inevitability about a try. Yeah, that Japanese try you could see that. You could just, see that on TV. Oh, just so inevitable. I just think that their execution let them down. They looked a bit tired in the second half. The defensive line speed wasn't the same as it was. They missed Johnny to a degree, even though Jack played very well in the first half. And uh, it got away from them. Yeah, in all of this, you have to say, the Japanese played like a team who had been preparing for this match specifically for two years. 
I always feared that the Russian game was no kind of barometer at all. Their opening match, that was just one get out of the way. Imagine if Ireland were awarded a World Cup 10 years from now. So we had succeeded with our bid. And it was 10 years to prepare for it. Two and a half years to prepare for the opening match against a tier two minnow. You're in a no-win position. And the second matchup is at home in front of a feverish home crowd against the team ranked number two in the world. And you've nothing to lose. Um, and that's where Japan were. And they made, maintained a level of intensity that was quite remarkable for 80 minutes. Uh, their energy, their enthusiasm, their line speed and defense, their work in the tackle, and ultimately their skill set, their passing, as evidence of the between try, was better than Ireland's. And you have to say they deserved the win. Gavin, it felt like Ireland attempted more offloads in the first half of that game than they had in the previous 12 months. And equally so, Japan had been saying in in the run-up to the game about how they liked the idea of keeping the ball in play figures as high as possible to test Ireland and push them to the limits physically in what they knew was going to be humid conditions. Would you... Would, do you get the sense that we slightly played into their hands with our tactics on the day? It doesn't matter what your tactics are if your third choice at half is on the pitch at a, in a vital, absolutely just work up decisive game. Fact of the matter is, Carberry and Sexton couldn't get themselves fit for the game. It's the third World Cup that Sexton hasn't been able to get them fit for the key game. And when it came to it, when they really need, they needed to be three scores up. Wales proved it against Australia last night. You need to be out the gate because of the humidity and because Northern Hemisphere teams are just not going to be able to cope with it. And when it came right down to it, Jack Cart, Jerry's right. Jack Cart, he showed pretty well for 20 minutes, but he was a speed bump defensively. He has never, ever played in a competitive test match. He's never started a competitive test match until that moment. And uh, it showed Ian Henderson has never been a senior key second row lineup caller in a major competitive test match until that moment. And it showed the leadership devoid was just clear as day. And it just all the plans, everything that was done over four years. And when it came to it, Ireland, brittleness came back and haunted them more so than anyone could have predicted. And yeah, it's bad luck, but uh, it's reality. Isn't that the key fact, Jerry? That like, and we have to give you know due credit to to the Japanese, and they were fantastic, and they play a lovely brand of rugby, and they knew exactly what they were doing. But even accepting that, uh, if Ireland were playing New Zealand or South Africa, and they didn't score after whatever it was the the nineteenth minute or the twentieth minute, like you'd still be going, where did it all go wrong? We we ought to be better than that. Yeah, for sure. It's the most disappointing aspect of the match that they. Uh didn't score in the last hour of the game. Um, it's becoming a little bit of a worrying pattern to degree. Like, uh, they had a lead in Cardiff, finished in the back foot. They even led after a quarter of the game against England and Twickenham before getting beaten at the gate. Um, they did their best work against Gotland in the first 25 minutes with three visits to 22 and three tries. They weren't as clinical for the rest of the game, but managed one good try from the box kick being chased by... Uh, Conway and Larmer and Murray putting Conway away on the right-hand side, but there's a little bit of a pattern here. Um, I don't know about uh, the tactics so much because I thought the tactics yielded a good dividend. I mean, the ball and play time was only 39 minutes. The Japanese uh, coaching staff were saying they wanted to make it 50-plus. Yes, when Jack Cardi regularly put the ball in behind uh, Lemecki, the starting left winger, um, they were quite happy to concede line-outs inside the 10-meter line. Like I said, Ireland had about seven of them. The cross-kicks worked well. You say they offloaded a lot. They only offloaded six times in the match. I think most people are concentrating on the one early in the second half when Chris Farrell obviously called for the offload inside from Keith Earls and it died a death by his feet. For me, what was more telling was the reaction to that when the ball was recycled. It was five metres inside the uh, Japanese half. Three passes to the outside centre channel. Um, and I think it was Raphael, by the Cynthia Raphael. Eventually he's tackled five yards inside the Irish half and eventually brought down two metres inside the 10 metre line. They just, Ireland just couldn't, didn't, weren't able to, just didn't employ anything like the same line speed and defence. They clung on brilliantly, but it was uh, back against the wall from a long way out. You just got nervous at half-time, to be honest, with a 12-9 lead. You could almost sense what was coming. Um, I'm not sure that they got the tactics wrong. It yielded a good early dividend, like I said, on the scoreboard in terms of territory. Even in the second half, they had more than half, more than 50% of possession in the territory. Like I said, they had four or five opportunities down in the um, Japanese 22 and just couldn't convert. Um, there was Murray's little no-look pass inside. There was Rory Best's overthrow. There was Joey Carby calling for the ball out the back and being nailed, like I said. And the Ruck not being resourced when James Ryan was tackled. I think only one of the front row replacements got there, couldn't 
effects that one man turned out by the time the other two got there. Uh, I can't remember who it was. It might have been James Moore again. Couldn't be shipped from the ball. So they were just... I think Japan surprised them by the way they kind of um, came in from the side, the way they brought um, the Irish clear it out down to ground. They just they were really competitive and slowed the ball down at the breakdown. And they were only penalised there twice the whole game, where Darren were penalised there five times. It was interesting that Angus Gardner gave a warning to Rory Best about Peter Armani trying to show him better pictures. He'd only conceded one penalty at that point. It looked a bit like Gardner was on the lookout for, uh, for Armani. So they came off worse in the breakdown, and that was the real heel to hunt. Because if they didn't come off worse in the breakdown, their game is very much a possession-based game. I don't know that they deviated all that much. They had to play some rugby. It worked to a degree to make, give them a 12-3 lead. It gave them chances to extend their lead at 12-6. They just didn't take them. Their execution just wasn't there. Lads, um, we, um, we're all saying this now in hindsight, but um, back in February, there's pictures coming out of the England camp before they came and destroyed Ireland in Dublin was the pictures of Tony Brown and Jamie Joseph getting the full playbook on England on how you beat Ireland. They were up in the Penny Hill training base um, for a full week getting access and as Jamie Joseph said afterwards, they've been primed for this. They've been preparing for this game three, for three years. And he had a real swipe at Schmidt in Ireland saying the, the cliches that are coming out of the Ireland camp is they only kind of looked at us and only, only focused on us last Monday. And the presumption being was they didn't. They just thought that they would beat us. They thought they would have us. And we've been, like everyone genuinely, and I think we all thought that um, Japan were waiting for Scotland in the long grass, not Ireland. Mm. And it turned out that all along, they always saw this one as their chance. This was the one that was going to ignite the nation behind them. And maybe they knew something that, maybe Jay O'Cowan in the back room, maybe Schmidt, maybe they all knew that uh, Ireland were going to fade badly in the second half because the desperation to get early scores. And you see, again, I go back, you see Wales. Wales knew against Georgia. Wales knew against Australia last night that you have to get the points up. And what happened was when Ireland got the 12-3, it was brilliant. It was perfect. It was primed for that. And they just needed the head. They needed that one more score. To, and then what happened instead, it was 3-6-9-12. Back Japan came. And every time, like I know you saw it on TV, but every time there was a score, you should have heard the place. It, was, it beats any All-Ireland I've been to. It beats any World Cup game I've ever been to before. It was unreal, the sound that was coming down from upon high at the Acapa. Jerry, uh, let's move it on from the game. You were uh, with uh, with Johnny Sexton yesterday, or Johnny was put up in front of the media yesterday. Um, I, I guess, like the fallout from these games, is always re- really kind of it, it, you're really in an in an odd place because they're you know they're not out of the tournament. They're you know like the, the the whole thing is still alive and yet you have to pick over the entrails some way what what sort of mood was was Johnny in yesterday and what what is the mood around the place uh very subdued very very subdued by his standards like in one sense it was very clever putting up a player who wasn't involved in the game because there's not much he could say he's hardly going to criticize his teammate he just said it was very frustrating to watch it always is for him anyway but it's particularly frustrating when he feels it's just that he just can't help his teammates. He's just no, no control over it. Um, so he was relatively subdued. I, I dare say the entire squad were in their trek down to Kobe and then the, they had a review yesterday. They had, to, they had it pretty quickly because of the short five-day turnaround before they play, play Russia. It's going to be a much same side. Um, he confirmed he's fit and he's taking the place kicking. So it's kind of, you know, Johnny Wright to the rescue again. We... Um, there's no doubt about it. He's 34 years of age, but he's still a fabulous player when he's fully fit. And Ireland uh, remain as dummy dependent as they ever were. Because if you look at the stats, I think something like in his last 21 test matches with the Lions in Ireland since the summer of 2017, he's only been on the losing side twice. He's had mm. 18 wins and a draw. In his last 18 tests for Ireland that he started, Ireland have won 16 and lost two. By comparison, the eighty hasn't started or hasn't featured in Ireland have won five and lost three. And a few of those five wins were against uh, tier two nations. Now, of course, statistics, damn lies and statistics. But there's no doubt about it. Even against Scotland, and I totally take Gab's point that he made in quoting Ronald Gar that when you have Johnny Sex on the pitch, you need him taking goal kicks. But it's still telling that they were prepared to leave him on until the bonus point try was scored and almost the hour mark even though he couldn't take goal kicks from the 25th minute onwards, having twice received treatment for a quad strain, that they kept him on the pitch. And that's because 
he is still the most important influential player in this team by some considerable distance. You think about every great achievement of the Lions, Leinster and Ireland in the last decade, the four Heineken Cups, the two Test Series, one one, 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 one drawn, the three Six Nations titles, the Grand Slam, the wins over New Zealand, everything else. The one common denominator in all of these wins is, Connor, is Johnny Sexton. Well, most and oftentimes in tandem with Conor Murray. But, mm. you know, he's just that important to the team, so they kept him on the pitch because he makes other players play better. He is a calming presence, even though he's also a very dominant presence, of course. But how can you not respect the voice of a serial winner and a world player of the year as against a guy who's only making his test, test start, second test start? Or even in the case of Joey Carby, who's only played 50 minutes rugby since last May. Johnny Sexton is very important to this team. I don't, maybe that's why they've wheeled him out. Um, along with Prime Minister Bill. I would say that it was quite subdued. Um, he, said, he said basically as well that they didn't execute properly. He made a few comments as well about not exiting well either, um, but he's not going to be too critical of the, of the performance other than air his frustrations. Uh, he did make the point that in his last two World Cups, a lot of people are going to think this is clutching the straws, but he did make the point in his last two World Cups, they, uh, they went four from four in the pool stages, one defeat and they were out. I think I remember one World Cup. France lost three games and finished yeah. fourth. Um, so they make the point that at least the one good thing about this is they now get a second chance because they haven't done the last couple of times. And I don't know. It's perhaps, perhaps uh, I, I have to think that they're they're damaged goods now because they've taken four blows to their confidence now this year to become a little bit more repetitive than 2018 when they only lost one match and they eradicated that by coming back and winning the series in Australia. They have responded well the last few times, but I was rather hoping that the England warm-up defeat was going to be the final warning shot. It was really disappointing to see them underperform like they did. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they go on now. They, they, they need a statement win over Russia. Uh, they need to beat Samoa and then see how the other results pan out. Either way, if they beat Russia with a bonus point, any kind of win over Samoa will, should ensure they go through. Um, we wait to see where myself and Gabber here in Kobe Stadium for tonight for the Scotland Samoa game, which has uh, generated quite some spite over Greg Laidlaw um, playing of the two uh, Samoan yellow cards in their first game against Russia. They were both uh, cheap shots, high hits, and definite red cards. And the Samoan camp are far from pleased with Greg Laidlaw and the Scots, and they are on a war footing. It should be quite an interesting game. So this pool still has a few more twists and turns to go. Yeah, there's nothing, probably nothing like as... Uh, as um, as predictable as we thought it would be, as interesting as anything would be how Japan responds. Because we have a big, high emotional performance like they had against us. They celebrated like they won the World Cup final itself. Mm. I mean, it is that big a game for them. As you guys said, they've been playing this for two years. How will they respond against Samoa next time out? It's very hard to produce that high level of performance. But I, I think the fixtures have planned it really nicely for them. I've held they are the host of this what it should do. They get seven and eight day turnarounds and they get to play Scotland last game at home. With the whole, with the, you want to see in the papers on Monday morning, it was just extraordinary. Suddenly, how rugby has just taken over completely in the sporting media psyche of this country, certainly judging by its media coverage, um, uh, relegating sumo wrestling, baseball, and everything else to the inner pages. It's been they're the darlings of the nation at the moment. They've got a huge feel-good momentum factor behind them, and they look almost favourites to win this pool now, I think. Gavin, we really didn't expect to be coming into the Russia game in desperate need of a big performance and indeed in need of Johnny Sexton pulling on his cape again to try and save us in this game. Where do you think that we're at at the moment overall in this World Cup? I was just looking through uh, Gordon Darcy's uh, the first draft of Gordon Darcy's column for Wednesday and he nailed it, turned around and he said, as usual, we're back to needing the one big, brave, plucky Irish performance mm. to get where we've never been before. That's where we are. That's it. Just the whole, don't worry, we'll get there in the end. And oh, with absolutely no evidence, we're expecting this team to go and show up against New Zealand or South Africa in a World Cup quarterfinal. And that's where we are. Russia, the team, they're going. He's going to. It's going to be, have to be completely changed because, like, someone like Ringrose will just blow up if you could run him again. Sexton has to play. Russia are like Russia couldn't even trouble Samoa. So I was in the Russian camp today. Did a big long. Spent three hours with um, Vaz Artemiev. It's a great story, actually, because he could have been an Ireland international if, it had a bit, if the, the chips had fallen another way. He used to be in the Leinster Academy, the Russian captain. And uh, they're loving it because they're back in centre stage and they're the focus again. Mark McDermott, who was the former Ireland and the 21s mm. coach, brought he- Heaslip's 21s in 04 to the World Cup final. He's their forwards coach. 
and they're just like ah, here free shot stuff. They're they're completely calm and relaxed, but they're just liking the fact that they're um, they're relevant, you know, like because this game was supposed to be just like kind of creeped by. And by the way, just got down to Kobe now a couple of hours ago. Jerry's been here for a day or two, and it is stifling hot. The humidity is off the charts. It's just, there's no way that Ireland are going to find a new level of fitness or conditioning to be able to be, like, it, again, it probably won't matter, but there's talk of the weather going to fall off the charts and winter's just going to land in a couple of weeks. And if it, uh, if it doesn't, uh, Ireland are just not going to be able to cope. <laughs> Well, on that cheery <laughs> note, on that cheery note, we will say goodbye to the two of you until Thursday, and uh, we will uh, talk to you uh, hopefully after the game on Thursday. And um, let's let's hope we have nothing interesting to talk about after that. <laughs> Cheers, lads. See you. Cheers. See you. Bye. Be good. Moving on to uh, cheerier. No, not cheerier. No, it's definitely not cheerier. Definitely not cheerier. Uh, uh, atmospheres, we have Emmett Malone in. It could be cheerier. Well, Emmett, we, we, you are reliably cheery. <laughs> uh, and I suppose the... Oh, uh, I, I think this could, this could count as a good news I story. I was just going to say, yeah. the net result is, yeah. is, is that uh, this, this is probably good news. This could be my last gig on, <laughs> on, on the podcast talking about John Delaney. That's, uh, that's bad news, obviously. I what else am I ever going to... You never have me in about anything I else. I think yeah. we very much doubt oh, that. Yeah, you have me in about the cup final semi-final yesterday. I, oh, no. Oh, no. Now JD's gone, that'll be the end of me completely. Are you, you're talking like somebody who doesn't realise there's a Rugby World Cup on and this is the... There's a Rugby World Cup on? Come on now. Behave Ooh, yourself. Uh, I knew there was, some, I knew there was something strange about it. the atmosphere in Black Rock on Saturday. I, uh, you know, I wasn't quite sure what. I thought maybe AIB shares had gone down again. Well, whatever about Black Rock. We're beside the business section of the Irish Times here. The Paul. Oh, the Paul over the place. I'd say, yeah, yeah. Any road to... Uh, uh, on Saturday night, late on Saturday night, yes. when we were all... You know, going about our lives, <laughs> as you might be doing at, what, quarter past 11 on a Saturday night? Not Emmett Reardon, who texted me to say that there was a statement out. He wasn't going about his life. <laughs> but my life, my life stopped at that point. Uh, in typical, which, which typical FAI form, which we thought was in the past, <clears> they <throat> do their business close to midnight yeah. in the witching hour. And put out a statement saying that John Delaney is gone. Okay, so the official the official line on this is <laughs> that the boys were hard at it on Saturday evening, yeah. and I don't know, maybe it was closing time was approaching, and you know they wanted yeah. a swift one before they went home. But they, they got the Are they actually done. claiming that? They actually they claiming are actually claiming that. That is the that is the suggestion that, that the, the talks, formulation of that words the formulation of words was done late on in Saturday in a three hundred word statement, and they seem to have run. Straight from the, the negotiation table to yeah. the fax machine <laughs> and whacked out a quick, you know, statement, yeah. Coincident- that, that is, that coincidentally, is apparently the claim, yes. Coincidentally, that is not 20 minutes claim, after, that is claim. after the Sunday Times went to bed. Yes, coincidentally. Yeah. The, the Sunday Times who <laughs> plagued them for the, the last year, I suppose. Yeah, but look, I mean, the Sunday Times, the Sunday Times yeah. have done great stuff in this yeah. and, 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 and all, all credit, all as credit Roy to, Keen, the lads, might say, yeah. to the boys. Uh, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure they were kind of completely taken by by this. They, they, they their version of the story was that that the negotiations were ongoing and that the you know a, a conclusion was close, um, maybe a little too close for their liking in the end. But um, yeah, look, I, I, look, they you know, I, I, but the thing about the FAI is very clearly that they have a bit of form on this. Yes. And if we think back to uh, the game in Gibraltar, it was a Saturday night. Mm-hmm. They just you know, oh, good match, lads, well done. You know, kind of wasn't a great performance. We'll do better. By the way, John Delaney's no longer the chief executive. He's uh, now the executive vice president. All right, see you, lads. Take care. Bye. And um, and so yeah, they have a bit of form in this, and we uh, and we have known from in part because of the work the Sunday Times have done. We know since that this was a genius strategy meant to catch us yes. all off guard that we would uh, be so uh, tied up right in our match reports that we might um, we might miss the fact that there was uh, they, they were setting John up with a new gig. Mm. So um, yeah, look, it doesn't it doesn't look good and. Um, and there is this unavoidable kind of suspicion that uh, they think this is very big and clever. Anyway, beyond all of that, that's, that's kind of small enough potatoes, beyond the, the larger issue, Don Delaney is gone. He's got, getting a payoff, got his payoff. Yeah. Uh, 
lay out the terms and, and all that kind of crap. Well, there's first. a number of figures going around, mm. and uh, and certainly as the day went on, um, yesterday there was there was a bit of briefing going on to the effect that it was uh, that the figure was kind of three fifty. I'd been told uh, around a half a million. I'm still confident that that's that's closer to the fact. The exact figure isn't known. I think it's about half a million, maybe just over. Um, I think there's some sort of incentive on the one hand maybe for some people in the FAI to you know have it looking a bit smaller because obviously there's a fair bit of anger about the fact that he's getting mm. any money at all uh, but but the sense absolutely is that the figure will come out in November anyway so there's not a huge amount of incentive mm. to to, to, uh, to minimise it now uh, only to have it contradicted later so we will see for sure in a couple of months what the exact figure is but I, I believe it's it's around half a million with 400 grand being paid uh, I mean these things are done because it's no skin off the nose of the people writing the checks mm. um, they're done in a tax efficient way for mm. the person who's departing so the understanding is that it's about 400 grand in, in pension contributions based on pension since 2011 or something and then an, a notice period or a payment in, in lieu of notice um, and that seems to be about a three month uh, period which would be about 90 grand so we're, we're talking ballpark 500,000 euro And what's your sense of the last few months has there, have these when they say negotiations are ongoing and all of that sort of stuff Sure well, I, was, it, I was told about three, four or five weeks ago that he was on the verge of going that talks were going and, and that you know and that it was all about to happen and uh, and then it didn't happen mm. um, and and so certainly they've been going on that long and they've been going on sporadically. When he went, I um, I was told that that the, the day he went, April 15th, they had a meeting up in a hotel room up near the uh, uh, function room up in the uh, near the, the, the airport. And I'm told that Do- Donald Conway that day was shaken by, you know, his financial demands that mm. he was looking for, you know. Three million euros, something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. huge money. Uh, I've seen the figure reported as as low as two million, <laughs> but um, I've also seen in excess of three million. Mm. And that um, and that there was a suggestion at the time, or there was a fear at the time, that if they attempted to write a check for that sort of money, they would actually push the association into insolvency. Wow. Um, that 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 was how bad things were at the time. But but there was also the the part of the problem at that stage was that nobody really knew just how bad things were. That things were coming out of the closet at that stage, and uh, they were. Begin, only beginning to really get to grips with just how, how bad things were at the association. So so um, so we've come from that point to this point where he's getting half a million. Half a million is a lot of money. Mm. Um, I don't think, you know, I in football or anyone really in football or you in, in other sports, you know, none of us uh, couldn't think of a whole load of better ways to spend half a million euro on your local club or your local league mm. or whatever it is. So um, so it's, 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 it's a lot of money and I can completely understand there, there's a great deal of anger out there. And yet... What I'm told by speaking to people in the business of settling dismissal cases, you know, um, regardless of what what line of work that is in, is that this case is based first and foremost on how much he was earning, which was a fortune, um, and is complicated by the fact that no matter how outrageous a great deal of the behaviour appears to be to the rest of us, for many years... The board was completely acquiescent, and um, a lot of what was going on. I mean, we've seen some of the figures um, in terms of his expenses, but people were signing off on those expenses. Mm. Um, they were approved expenses. Um, there, you know, there wasn't. This didn't all come out because there was a great, great big battle over how much he was taking out of ATMs late at night. So, so you know, Actually, there's, there's, I mean, there's, there's a complicating on, factor yeah, here. You touch on an on intrigue, a point that sort of intrigues me a, a bit here, mm. in, in that. Uh, presumably sitting across the table from him throughout these So as I understand it, the, the, the deal was negotiated by Donald Conway right. and by Paul Cook, who yeah. is a former critic, was yes. on council for yeah. many years, back was kind of, I mean, it says it all about the FAI, all you need to know about the FAI, that Paul Cook is sort of a legendary figure because himself and Brendan Dillon, who was a solicitor, you know, were, uh, was linked, had links to UCD football club, were sort of, I mean, people have actually described the pair of them to me as the only two people who ever asked any questions. <laughs> Um, and eventually yeah. both of them stopped being on council. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. They were sitting across the table. And as I, as it's explained to me by, you know, lawyers uh, who who are familiar with this line of work, they would have been making the point, the Delaney side would have been making the point, who apparently were kind of feisty about the whole thing, were making the point that all of this was approved, that he was answerable to the board. And and, and John Delaney used to say, I, I mean, I used to meet John Delaney at various things and try and ask him about stuff. Mm. And he'd, you know, 
yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, his way out of the situation and announced that he had, you know, he'd run that all past the board. And I used to think he was making that up, you know, like mm. I used to say, oh, yeah, sure, you're running all this past, past the board. But actually, when you see some of the minutes and stuff like that, you know, they, they actually did know, you know, certainly the indications are that he ran a lot of stuff past mm. the board. He was just so confident that he could get anything past mm. them, you know. So that sort of situation would have been relayed to these people his legal advisors would have been essentially saying that this is all complicated by the fact that everything was approved by the previous board. The, uh, in, the, the expenses were approved specifically by the two people who were supposed to sign off them, which was the Honorary, honorary Secretary and Honorary Treasurer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were members of the board too. Some of the stuff was some of that. Some of the uh, financial elements were, were brought back to the board. Like there's this €2 million Euro bonus, which also complicated the situation. If he stayed there until 2021, he was supposed to get €2 million Euros in a kind of loyalty bonus. The exact terms of that are, you know, slightly vague. It's supposed to be not quite as clear cut as it's mm. as, as it is made out to be. But there is a two million euro bonus. The board, it was put before the board. The way it's supposed to have happened is that the uh, honorary secretary and honorary treasurer, Michael Cody and um, Eddie Murray, Eddie Murray supposed to have like agreed it and Cody was the driving force in a lot of this. Cody's supposed to have just been quite agreeable to a lot of mm. it. Um, they came in, said this is the deal. It's put on the table, gone uh, you know, we're very lucky to have them. We've agreed a new deal. It's a bit of a bonus clause. Anyone can have a look now if they want. And the f- sense around the table was, if you picked up the piece of paper to look at the detail, you were dead. <laughs> and so nobody did. And so they voted through a wow. two million euro bonus without any of them really knowing the terms of it. Because that was how you stayed on the board at the FAI. Right. But going forward, I mean, from here... Well, say the reason that the late release of the press release on Saturday night is of interest is because it seems like more kind of obfuscation. And we have been, well, Shane Ross, for example, definitely says that he wants more transparency in the FAI. Sure. But you'd get the sense from everything that's going on at the moment, there's, you were wondering if uh, there's some non-disclosure agreements around yeah. some of the, the things. Well, well, there is. I mean, there they, is they, definitely, they, is they there. specifically say in a statement on Saturday night that they, that they both sides have agreed um, not to not to disclose the terms of the deal or not to discuss the terms of the deal, which I, I presume is a polite way of saying is they're, they're, they're NDAs. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like that much is changing going forward, does it? It feels like the exact same setup where, look, the people don't Need to know well, these things. I, 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 I agree with you to some extent. That was worrying. Absolutely, at, at half eleven at night, I was sitting at home, I get a text to say there's a statement. I look at the statement and the first thing that jumps out at me here is that there are, there are NDAs, you know. There's, so, A, a lot of money has changed hands and B, there, there is a non-disclosure agreement, on, you know, uh, preventing the details of the deal being... Um, uh, being disclosed. I would have to say that was my initial conclusion and, and obviously there's all suspicions about the timing of it and everything like that. I have to say that the, the sense yesterday was it felt different, you know. It felt different because I think the people who are running the FAI now are conscious of all of those issues. Mm. Um, I think it is standard in these things when somebody's going in these sort of situations to have an NDA. But it's also standard to have transparency enough in a big organisation like that Um that those figures eventually come out. If you if you pay somebody, whether it's three hundred fifty thousand euro or half a million euro, that's a big and you mm. know that's a big. It, this organisation in a decent year turns over between forty and fifty million year, euro. So that's one percent of of uh, of turnover in in a very good year. Um, so uh, you know the sense would be that you would have transparency somewhere down the line. I had calls for some reason recently to look through the Paddy Power accounts, and um, I was trawling through them, and I was staggered by the amount of detail. I mean, mm. uh, the chief executive's salary down to the last cent is mm. there. All the bonuses, all the pension, mm. you know, it could, and not just the chief executive, mm. uh, like all of the, the the senior management, all of their remuneration is there for you to read. And I think there is a sense that that is the way normal, healthy organisations operate. And I think that sense was there yesterday. And I think although the people who are a party to the agreement are felt bound by that and it was very difficult to get a firm figure that you could really stand over yesterday, there was also, they were at pains to say, we will be providing a full financial update to the membership in November. And, you know, you can you can assume that, that the figures will come out at that stage. Um, you uh, Presumably you were talking to FAI people yesterday, you are talking to people around. Is there a yeah. sense of like beyond the you know the sort of the news bomb element of it, the fire, you know the, the 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 sort of the, the headline news that John Delaney is gone, is there a sense around the place of, of any sort of relief or any sort of? Yeah, I think they've paid. I think we, they've we paid for the relief. On, yeah, I think they've paid for the relief mm. uh, to some extent. I mean, I think there's an acceptance that 
they, this is not something they wanted to do. I think there's an acceptance that they were going to come in for a stick from it. You mm. know, I mean, and the the reaction on on it's funny. I mean, from my own point of view, I've I've, I've written about John Delaney for a long time, mm. and back in you know, I don't want to, like smoke a fat cigar here, but you know, and say I told you so mm. 15 years ago. <laughs> but I said you know yeah. when the job was up and he was being interviewed yeah. that he should not get the job because mm. we already knew. Yeah how he had used the association's money to further his own Absolutely, political yeah. career, you know? He did the whole bonus thing with, 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 with Mick McCarthy Mac, in Japan. Gaskin, yeah. I mean, he's, yeah. £100,000 sterling was used as a, you know, as a way of shafting somebody else in the organisation. This was the association's yeah. money. A PR company then came and sat down with me and briefed me against the gen- general secretary of the FAI, Brendan Menton, mm. And they were being paid by the FAI to do it. I mean, this was the sort of, uh, you know, guy who was, they, they were given the job to. And the government had a hand in that. The government had had the opportunity to stop him getting the job and they waved him through at that point, you know. So on Saturday night, I get this text. I look at the statements and I jump to the conclusion that this guy has got a fat pile of cash, uh, is riding off into the sunset and they are not going to tell us what he got. And I wake up the next morning, I write something that night Kind of based on that on that assumption, mm-hmm. and I wake up the next morning and I see Paul Rohn from the Sunday Times is is is, is tweeting to the effect that the figure he thinks the figure is about two hundred grand, and my gut instinct straight away is, do you know what? I'd have given him two hundred grand. I'd have given him two hundred grand to go mm. just to get rid of it, you know, because Lance the, the boil. Yeah, because the the downside of this is consider you know potentially so great that they that you could see value in getting rid of him from that sort of money. I mean he's had about I was trying to tot it up yesterday. He's had about 175 grand for sitting on his backside somewhere since April 15th when he went on gardening leave. Yeah. He's on full salary. So they so they're drawing a line under that for a start. Now it, as the day went on the figure got bigger then it got smaller again, you know. So mm. as I say I I'm still confident enough about the 500 grand but you know we'll see. Uh, for sure, but it's between certainly between three fifty and, and five hundred. I'm told three fifty is wrong; that it's it's higher than that. It, the exact figure, I, I'd still mm. say slightly over five hundred grand is my 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 belief. Um, that seems high, but six months ago, when he was going, first of all, I was talking to employment lawyers, and they were saying in situations where even where you have a really strong case. But it has the potential to get complicated and messy and time consuming and distract. You know the people who are running the business. Even where you feel you have a really strong case, the standard is you establish that very strong case, you put it to the person, you, you know, there are various mechanisms you can, on an investigation, I mean, uh, I remember being told at one point that you, what you do here is you hire a senior counsel, you pay them 20 grand, you have them run an investigation, then you put the findings to the person, say, we're sacking you, and then you soften the blow just so, because if you, if you sack them with nothing, you leave them with very little mm. alternative but to try, they have very little to lose but to go down the high court. Mm. And once they could do that, the, 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 you know, the cash registers are ringing. Yeah. 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 So the sense was that in the end you offered them the range, it's a very standard range, apparently between 9 and 15 months of, of pay. Mm. And if you take what Delaney is on, if you take this 360, it's at the high, it's actually so slightly beyond that, 18 beyond, months. Yeah, yeah. But if you actually count in what he was actually on, which... You know, any lawyer representing him would certainly be arguing, for instance, the 40 grand a year rent. Once you include that, then actually it's, it's well within that range. And I think that's what we've seen here. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like to see him get the money. Uh, when he went in um, on April 15th, I absolutely felt they should have sacked him, sacked him mm-hmm. out the door, summary dismissal and fight the case. Mm-hmm. Apparently, things became complicated because they didn't do that at that stage. Right. Even, even that w- it would become a factor in all of this. Um, I don't know the full facts. Um, we're going to see more of those in reports. I completely understand the reservations of those people who are saying that they should have waited for the reports, that these would have provided um, evidence that could be used against them. I presume that the negotiations have taken place with everyone in the room being reasonably well aware of what's coming down the track. Um, I'm really sorry to see this guy get half a million quid, but I can actually understand probably why they did it. Mm. It was a very, very big punt to you know, put it up to him to take legal action against them. The suggestion is that the downside of that, the worst case scenario, would run into the low millions. And that's not a situation that the FAI, you know, can afford uh, to be in. It's a, a what a, if you're a gambling man, it's a, it's a bet of mm, six to one mm-hmm. that, uh, that you'll win. I spent some time down the high court this year following a case that I had an interest in. I would have bet my life that it would go one way. But on over the two days that I was there, one barrister, one side's barrister was very considerably more impressive than the other. And the key witness who I was there 
thinking was the was the good guy in all of this came across pretty poorly in a witness box and the case went completely the other way wow. it was it was an astonishing turnaround as far as i was concerned i i i'm you know i was absolutely staggered by it these things happen we all know people who've either won you know cases they you thought they were going to lose or, or lost cases. Mm-hmm. You thought they were surefire to win. So I can understand that in the situation, all of those factors came into play. The FAI wanted to throw a line under it. I think that it's remarkable. I've said this a load of times that Donald Conway is playing a key role in all of this. I think that does not look great. I, I've talked to a lot of people who think that he's doing quite a good job mm-hmm. now, that he's, you know, that he has changed and that he's embraced this reform thing. I still think the appearances of it are absolutely awful. But the fact is that We'll be in a better position when all of these reports come out to make an informed decision on this, you know, as to whether they've done the right thing here or not. I think we're still a little vague on that because we don't have all the facts. But at the moment, what I would say is that I can at least understand, you know, what they were thinking. And, and, and I don't know Paul Cook very well at all. Um, uh, he used to work in the Star, so mm. he has some connections with the media. But, but, but I don't, it just happens that I, I've, I've never really crossed paths with him very much. But he was a critic of John Delaney. And I think the fact that he was in the room add some credibility to to what they've done here. Emma, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. We will finish a very packed show with uh, Ian O'Reardon. How are you? All good, Maliki, thanks. You are here to tell us about uh, the World Athletics Championships, which I watched a bit of on Saturday night. And, um, oh my God, how could this, how could this possibly have gone worse? There's a question for well, you. I mean, as you said, I mean, I'm here and I'm not in Doha, and I think that says there, a lot in, in itself. That's bad it's the for a start, World Championships yeah. I've missed in a while, and and the reasons for that are, I could list off a lot of reasons, but a lot of people saw this coming. I mean, yeah. no one's really surprised by 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 the events. I mean, just to give you back the background here, I mean, Doha awarded these World Championships in 2014. Under the previous IWF president, Lamine uh, Diak, um, we used to actually nickname him Lame Duck because we mm. knew he was a, really bad for the sport. It's quite clear they bought these championships in 2014. Lame Diak is currently uh, is currently facing a, a French a French um, uh, 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 what's the word? He's going to be under under arrest, indictment, indictment yeah. for for money laundering, mm. for for bribe, all that kind of stuff. So we, we knew this was coming down the tracks, but I think we're all kind of. Um, sort of hoping for the best and fearing for the worst, but no, nobody feared it was going to be this bad. Mm. Um, I mean, I could list off again a whole variety of reasons. I mean, I think right now, Dude, if you, if you stage any event, any athletics event, any sporting event in Doha right now, you would, you, you would struggle to fill the stadium, okay? You could have a Barcelona against Real Madrid. They're just not a sporting nation, first of all. They're certainly not an athletics nation. Mm. Secondly, the heat is unbearable for mm. both athletes and the spectators. Now, I know they've got air conditioning in the stadium, but it's still averaging 35, 40 degrees each day um, then you factor in that, like, even, even look at the schedule like last night for example the women's 100 metres final was on at half 11 local time again mm. just to try and keep it as late in the day as possible the marathons are starting at midnight this does nothing to promote the sport I think it's very unfair on the athletes I think it's certainly unfair on the um, on, 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 on the spectators as well and, and I, I think Sebastian Coe the current IWF president certainly I don't think his hands are completely clean on this because he saw this coming. We saw this coming down the tracks for the last four or five years, and they could have. They could have said, "No, we're actually not going to. We're not going to. We're not going to go ahead with this. We're going to. We're going to rearrange our plans and give them somewhere else." Because it's only it's only two years since they broke the records in London. I think it was over seven hundred thousand people mm-hmm. came came through to the. Sorry, attended London uh, two years ago. This time last year, they were selling out the Olympic Stadium for a European Athletic Championships. I don't think this is a, a fair reflection on the sport. I think it's a reflection on. On, on the realities of sport now, where if you if you if you bribe a country into if a country bribes into, into, uh, any sporting federation to give them a, a sporting event, this is the consequence. We might see something similar in the World Cup in, tw- in mm. twenty twenty two. But the last point as well, I'm going to make is that I only found this out quite recently. That on top of all that, Doha is currently under an economic blockade by all mm. its neighbouring countries. It's basically being Absolutely, boycotted yeah. by all its yeah, countries. Yeah. So th- does this does this kind of Doha kind of outlaws within their own community mm. or sorry, within that own part of the world, which which believe me doesn't help. Either. There's a big, there's a big blackout amongst all the neighbouring countries. So it's not even been shown in all the neighbouring countries. Mm. So, for all those variety of reasons, um, yeah, this will definitely go down as as, as po- possibly the worst attended sporting event, global sporting event that, that I've ever seen. I think the two events that really set people's alarm bells ringing were the hospital being set up at the finishing line for the marathon because of so many people like literally collapsing across the line and then as you put it at some point over the weekend Maliki less people being at a county semi-final than were at the the blue ribboned event the 100 metres on top of which 
the winner of the 100 metres has such a cloud over him as well, Christian yeah, Coleman. And the silver medalist. And the silver medalist. Well, we, course, yeah. silver medalist has had a cloud over him for I so mean, long. We've It wouldn't be a proper 100 metres final if you didn't yes. have to suspend credibility. So I, I wouldn't blame it on that. You know, I mean, last again, two years ago in London, I mean, you had you had Bold versus Gatlin and people, the, the stadium was full to see that. I guarantee if these championships were held in London, the place would be full because there is, I don't think it's a reflection on the interest in sport, but you're right, you throw it into, you throw it into the mix, it doesn't help. But you mentioned the marathons and I mean, that's why it's really unfair on the athletes because most athletes might get one chance in their life to. Ian, you're being very kind. It's beyond unfair. It's an absolute <laughs> scandal. Yeah, yeah, Come on. Now. Yeah, it is. It is an absolute scandal that you have a you have to put a bleeding marathon on at midnight, and even then it's thirty-one degrees. And b like you are putting people in danger. Yeah, you are. There's you no, are. There, there, like, there's no talking no around that. Yeah. And, and I think that's why Sebastian Coe needs to take a good hard look at himself and, and the IWF in general. And look, I mean, I think, I think. I think the Federation has moved on and this is kind of the legacy of, of Lame Diak. This is his legacy and we're seeing this right now. And This is the reason why he's facing 10 years in jail or whatever and so is his son, by the way, who was also involved. And we're talking millions of pounds at exchange hands, but where did that money go? Like, who, you know, who's got mm. it? It's, it's still sitting in somebody's bank account. I'd like to know who. Um, but it's a pity as well because... You go back to you go back to London two years ago, and we're building towards an Olympic Games, and I mean the sport was kind of on a bit of a momentum, and now it's now it's just it's it's, it's fallen back into this abyss again. And you know, again, the reason I'm watching it here, and I kind of see from the other side, and you watch BBC, and they're trying to hype it up, and they're putting mm. on a pretty good package, and mm. it, it it's still presented very well. But when you're watching a hundred meter final, the women's hundred meter final last night, and yet Dean Asher Smith winning a first um, medal for Britain in the event, and it's a big occasion for her, and she's doing a lap of honour in a completely empty stadium, yeah. and that was that was sad, scandalous. T- you know, t- take your pick of words. Yeah, and but he, 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 you even make a, a good point there. Like I've had to now, obviously, it's a consequence of the RT aren't covering it either, but. Uh, you have to go hunting for it, like because it's not fully on BBC. Like there's a bit of it is uh, you kind of have to go to to YouTube to see some of it. Like it's it's harder even to to, to kind of stay engaged with it if if you're like if you're building your week around the World Athletics Championships. So even that, even apart from anything else, it's later in the season, isn't it? It's, oh, it is. it's way is, later is, than, yeah, than it usually exactly. is. This again, this is this you know later later September into October. This is not the time at you know athletics are at, athletes are at their peak, and we saw that. They're time. usually done by now. Yeah, we saw that on Thomas Barr, by the way. I mean, Thomas Barr came very close to making the final. I think we should give, give him some credit for that. Mm. I mean, he finished fourth in his semi-final. He, I think it was point one away from going through as the fastest loser. But Thomas Barr has been racing since the start of May. And he looked to me like a tired athlete. Mm. Thomas Barr's strength in a 400 metre hurdle is the last 50 metres of the race where he, where he kicks on. There was nothing there mm. on what was a, a Saturday afternoon. Because he he's had a long, tired season. A lot of athletes have had a long, a long hard season. So you factor that in as well. It doesn't help. And again, it goes back to... Why they did? Why they agreed to Stacey Championships in the, in the middle of the desert? And I remember when the vote came in because it was three other candidates. I think it was Stockholm, Barcelona, and Barcelona had put on really good. They had a really good um, candidacy, and we were sure Barcelona were going to get it. Nobody thought Doha were going to get it. Everyone's like, "There's no way they're going to give the championship to Doha. That's absolutely impossible because it's, you know it's going to be it's going to be uh, the worst nightmare." And that's that's exactly as it's unfolded. And the thing is, like we can we can't sit here as sort of Western Europeans and say that all sports events should be played, you know, set in the big cities in Western Europe because they all put on a great show. Like, of course, the world events have to go around the world, but you can't lose sight of the people without whom the events don't happen. You can't lose sight of the sports people. Yeah, of course. It'd be like the GA saying, you know, we're trying to grow, we're trying to grow hurting of football. So let's let's play our Ireland football final in, in Doha, Qatar. It's not, it, that, that mentality doesn't necessarily mm. ring true. And I mean, I spoke to Pierce O'Callaghan, a well-respected Irish official who's been involved in athletics for many years. He was hired by the IWF about six months ago as a director of readiness. Now, that, <laughs> now, that might sound like a bit of a, a laughing matter. But That's they realized, 2012. Like, we, we need, like, they knew that, they just, there, was, there was a fear like about three or four months ago, they may, they may not even be ready to host this. So at least they're actually, at least they've actually they're actually staging them okay um, but it goes back to my point that I don't think it's a reflection on the sport because I remember watching the World Championship cycling event was in Doha two years ago mm. was it 2016 and the same thing there was nobody there absolutely nobody there I was watching the World Cycling Championship yesterday in Yorkshire it was absolutely pissing rain mm. the whole day mm. and there was crowds like mm-hmm. you know, three or four deep the whole way because the, you know British, British people like their cycling British people like their athletics the Qatari nation have no interest in track and field and that, that's, that's the reality of this event and we've still got another seven days to go by the way and I'm really <laughs> looking forward to the men's 5,000 metres tonight you got the Dreen Gabrigsons we still have Kira McGee 
McGeehan to come. We still have Phil Healy. So we're not, we're not quite done yet. And we've got to give a bit of credit for Brendan Boyce as well, finishing sixth in the most grueling event, the 50-kilometre walk. That's 30-odd miles in old money. And to finish top six in the world in, um, in what is actually quite a competitive event, I think, I think he certainly deserves a bit of credit for that. And but, he also managed to find the energy to moonwalk <laughs> over the line. Is that something that he's done before? No, or? I don't know where that came from. Uh, it was, he's obviously... Was it legal? Uh, good question. Both feet touching the good, ground. Good at question. All times. Well, yeah, 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 I'm not yeah, quite yeah. sure what the, what the, the laws <laughs> of, of moonwalking are, but uh, no, fair play to Brandon because I mean he's been on the scene. I think he's 32 mm. now, and he's been knocking around. He's coached by Rob Heffernan. Mm. And look, I'm not trying to glamorise the walk here. We know it's it's a, it's a, it's a gruelling event, and I I'm not gonna lie. I didn't sit up all night to watch the four hours, but I, I tuned in for the last hour when he when when I when he was. You know when he's moving up the field, but but I think it's it's again he's it's he got a ride in the day. You know he's, he's put the he's put the hard work in. I think somebody said he's only missed three days training over the last year. Mm. So you put that in the context of any sport, that that's a serious effort. You know, looking ahead to Tokyo next year, if you want, if you were to be serious about medal contenders in track and field, he's definitely one of them to finish well, sixth in that event. And you know, Rob Heffernan started like his big breakthrough essentially was in, was in Osaka in 07 and he came sixth there. You know, yeah. and and built on that over the years to come. Like it is there for. Tell us a bit about Brendan Boyce though. Like he's been around for for a while. Exactly, Donegal, Donegal man, Finn Valley. He's been involved in the mm. sport, and you know he's just. And it is a sport. And the fifty kilometre walk is one of those events where you, you have to be a little bit mad. I mean, ah, everyone yeah. knows that, and he is a little bit mad in the sense that he's you know in a kind of. I mean that as a compliment. You have to be just totally focused on the events mm. and completely dedicated. And he is. He got married about three months ago, and he said that he hasn't seen his wife. He's only seen his wife for about two or three weeks since since he got married. So. I'm not sure if that's a, a good or a bad thing. To, Secret to a good marriage, though. To kick off your marriage. But you're right, and I think um, if you look at our, I think, again, it was Pierce O'Callaghan posted a list of our top eight performances in the World Championship since they started in 1983. And we haven't had that many. We've mm. had the likes of Eamon Coughlin, obviously, Sonia O'Sullivan, Dervil O'Rourke, but he's, he's, he's top eight as well, which is kind of what qualifies as a placing or, or, or marking. So it's a fair play to him. Again, I think, I think it, it, unfortunately, the walk, it's not, it's not one of the most glamorous events, so it does get a little bit lost. But again, you can you consider the heat, you consider the conditions, and just to be able to peak on a day like that is a, it's a yeah full credit to him. Well, hopefully the uh, the rest of the week. I mean, it, it, the the overall atmosphere around it, the whole championships. I can't imagine any way that they're going to improve. So I imagine there'll be a bit of this through the week. But um, yeah, we've still got still got the 1500 meters to come. There's a few there's a few headline events. The men's 800 meters tonight would be a great race as well. Uh, uh, so that's Tuesday night. I mean, unfortunately, Mark English didn't run too well in his heat. It didn't quite get through it out. But I mean, the distance race will, will always will always excite. And uh, look out for Inga Brigson brothers tonight. Mm. There's only been one other European winner of the men's 5000 meters, and that was Eamon Coughlin back in 1983, first first edition mm-hmm. of the championship. So let's see. Let's see, 36 years later, can we have a, a, a European champion? Ian, thank you so much. Uh, and thank you to Emmett, who we had in earlier, and thank you to Jerry and Gav, who we were talking to in Japan. Thank you to Declan, running the ship on his own today. Thank you to you, Pat. Thanks, Ma. And thank you to everybody. We will talk to you all on Thursday after uh, Ireland hopefully get back on the horse against Russia. Take it easy. Added Time is supported by Fitbit. With Amazon Alexa built in, your personalised sleep score and a five-plus-day battery life. Fitbit Versa 2 takes smartwatches to the next level.